Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to In Transition, the podcast that examines the practice of content marketing in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thank you once again for giving up just a short period of your time as we discuss what I find to be a fascinating part of the changing landscape in communication as we all wrestle with how do we put those journalistic skills to work on behalf of our organisation so that we can cut through and engage with those audiences to encourage the behaviours we need in order for us to achieve our business objectives. So this week, a great interview is coming your way shortly with a a very talented journalist who is now working in corporate communications for the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. But before we come to him, we start with the definition as we do each week. Content communication is a strategic, measurable and accountable business process that relies on the creation, curation and distribution of useful, relevant and consistent content. The purpose is to engage and inform a specific audience in order to achieve a desired citizen and or stakeholder action. So to our guest for today is Ari Sharp, who is the Senior Media Manager at the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, and he's held that role since January of 2015. In his role, it really is about shaping the Australian Chamber's external communications activity, which include media engagement, interviews, speeches, social media, and indeed content. In 2014, Ari was a communications officer for the G20 during Australia's host year, which culminated in the Leaders' Summit at which more than 30 world leaders convened in Brisbane to discuss the state of the global economy. From 2011 to 2014, Ari lived in Indonesia, where he worked as the chief copy editor at the Jakarta Globe newspaper and wrote a book, Risky Business, which was about the experiences of foreign investors in Indonesia. Prior to that, from 2007 to 2010, Ari was a journalist for The Age in Melbourne and Canberra, completing a traineeship before reporting on business during the global financial crisis and federal politics during the fall of one Prime Minister and the rise of another. He graduated from the University of Melbourne in 2006 with a Bachelor of Commerce and a Bachelor of Arts, and he's currently studying for a MBA at the Australian National University. A busy man is Ari Sharp, and thanks very much for joining us in Transition. David, it's great to be with you. Wonderful career. That's such a really diverse, interesting (laughs) career, isn't it? Well, when you put 10 years' worth of a career in uh, a minute and a half, it does sound (laughs) like you've done a lot, but... uh, Along the way, I, I have been very lucky with the things that I've been done and the, the doing and the people I've met and the sorts of projects I've been involved in, so I really enjoy it. Were you mindful from a young age? Were you thinking, this is where I'm going to go? Or did you follow your nose through various opportunities? Um, I was always interested in politics and always interested in journalism, but didn't know that I was going to make a career out of it. In fact, when I was uh, studying my undergraduate degree at Commerce and Arts at University of Melbourne, I was thinking a career in banking was awaiting. So I was, you know, fiercely filling in application forms for graduate programs at the NAB and ANZ and actually secured an offer at uh, NAB and was thought that I was going to be bound for there after uh, finishing uni. But uh, in the end, scored a position at The Age in Melbourne back in the glory days when newspapers were actually taking on a whole big chunk of 
trainees. Uh, sadly, it's not like that anymore. But was thrilled to get my start uh, in a newsroom filled with people who I considered legends, people whose work I'd read for years and years, who I really admired, who were giants of their profession. And to uh, to learn from them was such an experience. I was really privileged. So what was driving that urge to go to be a banker? What part of your... <laughs> Makeup was thinking about that. Was it about security? Was it about wealth creation? Or um, I, I think part of it was uh, an expectation in my family and community that uh, you sort out the uh, the security. job, the security yeah. and, and income, and uh, you put yourself on a particular path that would set you up for life. Yeah. Uh, and journalism, even back then, was seen as something that you did for love rather than money. Whereas banking, I think, was probably very much the opposite. Yeah, indeed. So uh, I think it might have been societal factors that were sort of nudging me in that direction. Um, but I'd always had a strong interest in journalism and was thrilled when uh, when that's where I ended up starting my career. And take me back to the first day when you you arrived into you know the Age <laughs> newsroom because I. I remember my first day so clearly walking, working, walking into ABC Radio Current Affairs. I can, I can feel it now almost when you, you think, ah, it's almost like arriving in a land of, of promise and a land of um, discovery and opportunity. I must say, after doing a month-long traineeship with the other new starters and then being unleashed on the newsroom, the first thing that struck me was just the physical layout of it. It was like a throwback to the 1950s. This was back at the old... Uh, the old offices of the age in Melbourne that they pulled out of in about uh, 2010, I think. So they're no longer there, but it was an old brick building. They used to have the printing press actually positioned in the basement of this building, so it was quite an industrial site. Okay. You had desks piled up with newspapers everywhere. You had half-drunk cups of coffee. You had a certain smell about the place. It wasn't that many decades prior that they actually stopped people smoking inside yeah, yeah. the office. <laughs> so it was it was that sort of atmosphere that it created. And if you see uh, some of the magnificent films about print journalism, you really get a feel for what it was like. If you see All the President's Men, yes. uh, for example, you get a feel for, for what it was like. So that was the, the environment that I found myself in. And then the people, um, they, they seemed like people that belonged in that environment. You can see why some people go into print and some people go into television. Uh, there's a certain uh, look and a certain way you, you present yourself. Um, but to be among these print guys who had um, broken incredible stories, who had covered great events in history, who had reported from all around the world, and to actually get to see them practice their craft up close. This is the, the, the beauty of being in a newsroom where you get to overhear their end of the conversation. You get to hear the banter between different people. You get to hear how the editor relates to, to staff. Those little tips and those little nuances just make such a difference to how you go about your craft as a, as a young journalist trying to learn how things work. What were some of those things that you learnt that you still hold on to to this day that help you to be a good storyteller on behalf of the, you know, the Australian mm. Chamber of Commerce and Industry? The most important thing is relationships, that you've got to build a connection with people, whether it's your colleagues, whether it's your boss or whether it's your sources, and show them that you're genuine and sincere in your intentions, that you're not just there for a quick story or there to uh, take advantage of them and then you move on to something else. People want to know that you're actually really uh, listening to what they've got to say and that you believe in what they've got to say. So that building of relationships I found is really important as a journalist uh, and also now working as a corporate communication specialist. Mm. But in terms of the craft of being able um, to tell stories, because actually I do want to explore um, that notion. You, you wrote a blog recently on um, the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry sites around, you know, that, you know, presenting evidence, you know, to, to, to moving to stories, which we'll come to in a moment. But what did you learn um, in that crafting a story? How do, you, how do you tell a good story? I think 
you've got to put yourself in the shoes of your reader or your listener or your viewer. Understand where they're coming from, what's on their mind, what are their interests, what's the, the base level of knowledge that they have, and then build up from there. So don't assume that, you, that your audience uh, are very uh, sophisticated in their understanding of the topic, or don't assume that they really care passionately about it. Find some emotional hook, find some way to connect with them on a very human level uh, when you're telling telling the story. So it might mean that you've got to sift through a lot of really dry material to find that little angle. And if you if you approach the material as, as a, an ordinary person yourself, you'll feel that, um, that kind of leap of joy or that leap of anger or that leap of excitement, some sort of um, visceral emotional response to a bit of information that you hear and you think, okay, that's where I've got to start my story. That's what I've got to impart to my reader and that's how I'm going to um, bring them along with me on the journey. And how important is it once you've identified that to communicate that straight up front? Is it all about grabbing attention? Um, one of the, the things I learnt um, in the newsroom is that you don't have long to grab your audience's attention. People are busy. They've got lots of different things that they can sample. You've got to grab them not just in the first <clears throat> couple of paragraphs but the first sentence, the first word. You've got to put that, that uh, attention-grabbing detail right up the front and bring your reader along. Grab them by the throat and don't <laughs> let them go. Um, that's what you've got to do. Don't, don't bury the lead. Don't wait, you know, several paragraphs before you put that juicy bit of information in. It was interesting when I was um, working as a, a sub-editor at a newspaper in Indonesia where a lot of the journalists there were fantastic young Indonesians, bilingual, very talented, very switched on, but they'd learnt the, the Indonesian craft of writing stories, which is that you bury the lead, that you'll put that juicy bit of information six or eight or ten paragraphs in. It emerged that the reason why that happened is that during the new order period of President Suharto, censorship was really prolific, but the censors were lazy. The censors would read the first couple of paragraphs <laughs> and if they found something really provocative, they'd put a, you know, a big red line through it and it wouldn't go out. Ah. But if they got six paragraphs in and they didn't find it, you'd be okay. So journalists and readers had a, a sort of a winking relationship with each other where they'd know where the juicy details <laughs> were buried and it wasn't in the headline or in the lead paragraph. Thankfully in Australia and, and nowadays in Indonesia it, it has changed. Um, we have freedom where we can speak our mind and we can put those juicy details up the top mm. uh, and I think in any piece of communication really you should be doing that. Now, you have transitioned or you've moved across from uh, journalism into the world of uh, corporate communication with a, a very important job, really, you know, uh, telling the story of the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, which is the really peak body for Australian business. How do you go about finding the stories? How do you get about going the stories? And there's actually another um, interesting blog that you wrote, this notion around winning hearts and minds of people beyond the sort of bubble that we live in, in, in sort of in, in the political world. And we'll come to that as well. But how have you found that transition? You know, because I know many people who work in government communications do have a, 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 um, a background in journalism. Um, how have you managed that transition and that change? When I started at the Australian Chamber a couple of years ago, part of my brief was to help tell the stories that were going on inside the Chamber. So um, traditionally the way that lobbying was done was that it was behind closed doors, up in the hill at Parliament or in, you know, in Congress or wherever it, it might be. 
and it was very much between the decision makers and the, the influencers of the lobbyists and they decide what they wanted behind closed doors and present it as a fait accompli. What's happened the past 10 or 20 years is that now you need to go and make your case to the public. You need to build popular support for whatever, uh, whatever reform you're looking for. Politicians in any democratic uh, society uh, are governed by what uh, popular mood is. No politician is going to go and put forward a proposal, no matter how much they agree with it, if it's on the nose with the public. Public. So it means that the job of a, of a, a lobbyist is not just to uh, get the ear of the minister or the senator, whoever it might be, but is also to build mass popular support for the particular initiative they want to see put into practice. So when I started a couple of years ago at the Chamber, um, we were and continue to be very strong uh, at doing that behind closed doors type lobbying, but we realised there was a bit of a disconnect in how we were building popular support for the things that we were that we were advocating. Yeah. Uh, and so part of my role is to go and, and tell those stories and build popular support for what's going on. Uh, and to do that, it means a lot of close contact with our policy directors. We're really blessed to have some of the best policy people uh, in Australia in uh, economics and industry policy, in employment, education and training, in trade policy. Uh, and those guys know their stuff in a policy sense. They've got the contacts. They do that really well. Uh, what I can do is help them to communicate that to a mass audience. So to take all the jargon and, and all the technical detail that might be in a, a submission or report that we write and finding a way to make that... Um, make that comprehensible and, and, and to build sympathy uh, among the public. Now, it's interesting you say that because obviously this particular podcast does focus people who are working in government communication and we often talk about that massively untapped resource, which are the policy areas of the, you know, these great departments that we work for, these incredibly smart people. I actually had a meeting with someone this today that was just such a joy such a smart person. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. And then I thought, I can't wait to get into this guy's head to get those stories out so as that we can start to build that understanding of exactly, you know, why this policy is doing, what the detail of the policy is to address, you know, that, um, you know, the particular problem that they're, they're seeking to address. And so we do talk about it on this program quite a bit, is that how do you do this? How do we how do we get to policy people to give them the confidence and to give them the skills to become better storytellers and to understand that there is that audience out there and that is the role for everybody is to, is to build understanding of what they are trying to do? I come back to something I mentioned earlier and that's relationships. Yeah. You've got to build that relationship, build that trust, show that you're, uh, as a communication specialist, not trying to take advantage of, of the colleague whose material you're working with but that you're trying to help them tell their story. Uh, so what I find is that it's better to listen for a while than just to go in to talk, to to uh, to read what they've got to what they've what they've written and to hear what they've got to say, and to find some way to turn it into accessible material, and then go back to them. Yeah, have have a feedback loop where you you might uh, you know, redraft some of the material or you might suggest a way of putting it, and you ask them, is this right? Is this what you mean? Have I captured the the essence of your message? And listen to what they've got to say. If they're ambivalent or if they uh, are a bit hesitant, then have another go. Clearly there's there's something that's not quite right there. Mm. So you've got to build that trust. And it might take several drafts. It might, in the short term, um, be less efficient if you've got to have this sort of constant uh, you know, feedback loop where you propose something and then you hear what they've got to say and you go back and forth and back and forth. But that's the only way that you'll have buy-in in, in that project and that they'll be happy with the finished product and that they'll be more willing to engage with you next time. Now, this might seem like an 
odd question, but how important is it that you get up out of your chair and not use the phone and actually, you know, walk to where that person is and sit with them, yeah. to be human with them? It's interesting. We, we had a bit of a, a natural experiment, I suppose, like that when uh, one of our media team was based out of uh, – our head offices in Canberra and one of our media team for a while were based in Melbourne. And we just thought we'd give that a go to see how it worked out. And we did find that what was lacking was that incidental contact, that chance to, you know, the water cooler chat or the chance to actually sit side by side with someone and go through, you know, have a discussion or go through a document. Uh, And so we ended up deciding that we really do need to be all centrally located in the one office uh, in order to achieve that sort of um, close bond. Yeah. And in terms of this, that challenge of, you know, trying to capture the essence of it without dumbing it down, you know, and... And, and trying to take the comprehensiveness sometimes out of, well, you've got to actually put that, that bit in and that bit in, you know, and that bit doesn't make sense. How do you go about that? How do you go about shaping that? Is that where those journalism skills come in? Um, very much so. The first day I had in the office at The Age, my editor jumped online and printed out George Orwell's Rules of Writing and he's got six core principles on clear expression Uh, And I must admit, I can't recall them all now, but the gist of it is that you keep it short, you don't use cliches, you don't use jargon, um, if you can leave a word out, you should do that. Um, So if you apply those sort of rigorous editing principles to your own work and to other people's work, you can find that you make uh, quite complex documents uh, and quite complex uh, bits of communications a whole lot easier to understand. Uh, And the other thing to remember is that very complex ideas don't necessarily need complex language. There's an old saying, I think it might have been Einstein, that said if you can't explain it clearly you don't understand it. So there's a lot to that. A lot of people hide behind jargon, hide behind bureaucraties. Deep down it's because they're unsure that they they understand the material and this is how they're hiding behind it. So I have seen in the past you can have incredibly complex ideas, incredible nuance and subtlety expressed in very simple, plain, accessible language. Mm. How important do you find or would you um, propose journalism skills are becoming now that the factors of media production and distribution have been democratised, that those, they no longer belong to the media, they now belong to everybody and therefore my argument and my thesis is in fact journalism skills and journalists are becoming more value are more valued and more important than they've ever been in the past. Would you agree with that? Uh, I think there's a lot to that. I think that anyone who's, uh, you know, using Twitter or using Facebook or any of those other social mediums is a storyteller and, and is a, uh, is aiming to be a clear communicator. I mean, there's a, a constraint of the format that if you only have 140 characters, you can't afford to waffle. You've got to cut to the chase. <laughs> yeah. uh, and Facebook is, is not much different. Similarly, the way that visuals are becoming more and more prolific in these forums, you've got to find a way to, to show your story as well as to tell it. Uh, I think those skills are essential not just among uh, people who are uh, officially practising communications but among anyone who's using those platforms and wants to get a message out. Yeah. Now let's just go back to this this task that they said, okay, Ari, your job is to help us to tell our story better than we are at the moment. So the one-on-one stuff, we've got that covered up on the hill so we don't need you there. We need you over here. What did you? What was there when you arrived, and what are some of the changes that you've made to the way that the Chamber of Commerce and Industry goes away, uh, goes a, a, about its business, in order to achieve its objectives? Um, in the past, uh, 
the organization was, was producing a lot of material that didn't have a clear audience in mind. So it would often be driven by a policy director who had uh, something on their chest they wanted to get out and they'd put pen to paper and it would be disseminated uh, either to among our membership or attempting to, to place it in a, in a mainstream outlet. But there wasn't... Um, from what I can tell, there wasn't a, a really clear strategy. Yeah. So what I've done in, in my time there is to try to develop a pathway where we can take uh, ideas and policy proposals that staff might have and actually find ways to um, build a mass audience for them. So we've uh, developed a weekly product that we call Chamber Insights, uh, which is a chance for each of our directors to write a couple of hundred words of analysis or commentary on something that's going on in their space. These are people who know their stuff. They know their area incredibly well. And this is a chance for them to show what they've got. And so that's written with the intention of reaching out to a membership, which is dozens of industry associations, hundreds of staff uh, in total, you know, very influential audience. From that, we say, okay, well, what's the strongest of that content? What's the stuff that really has legs? And then we think, well, maybe we put it up on our blog. We've launched a new blog called Commerce and Industry, which is a, a thought leader space uh, for people to express ideas among staff and among the membership. But who is that for? So who's the order? So we get get the first bit, yep. that's the membership. So here it is and we're going to give you that stuff and I'll come back to that in a minute because it's how do you get busy people? That's another question. How do you get busy people reliably to produce content, um, quality content? But then so once you've got that, you've sifted through it and you've said, okay, this is our strongest. So who's the audience for that? for the blog? Um, the blog, we think, uh, among people with an interest in policy, we know that we're not going to attract a lot of Joe Public just browsing uh, upon it. The sort of subject matter doesn't really lend itself to that. But there is a big community of policy specialists, people that love a good argument, people that have got <laughs> ideas about, about the future and, and feel strongly about it. Um, we think we can attract them to our space, that Great. we can be the area, this blog can be the place where people go to discuss and debate ideas. That's a really interesting insight too, because I think often people think that audiences have to be large, whereas in this day and age, I think increasingly audiences are getting narrower and narrower all the time as people sort of draw to themselves precisely, you know, this notion of the audience of one and that the wider you go, the harder it is to be relevant and you really have to – and see, I can hear I, – I can almost see that person who you are trying to talk to in terms of the blog. So those guardrails must be very helpful in terms of selecting that sort of wonky policy stuff that uh, it can be as wonky as you like because that's what those that particular audience likes. Yeah, very much so. I think there's – in communications these days a big focus on niches rather oh, yeah. than, than mass audiences. Yeah. That's where, um, you know, in a commercial sense, that's where there's revenue opportunities. Yeah. And people like things that are particular to them. Yes. Um, that's what we're yeah, seeing precisely. more and more in people's media consumption. Now, are you finding that the, is the blog working for you? Uh, look, it's still it's still early early days. Um, we are getting really good engagement from staff. We've started to find that members are interested in having some of their content um, shared on it. Okay. Uh, and we do we do give it a push uh, through our social media channels and uh, through our own member communications to try to draw um, traffic to it. Um, still, numbers are, are fairly modest, um, and we know that we're in a busy marketplace where there's a lot of outlets there. But it does lead to the third element of our comm strategy, which is to take um, the ideas that work well in a blog format 
and then say, well, okay, how can we push that out to a, a major audience? So how yeah. can we uh, turn that, for example, into an opinion piece that might run uh, on a, a mainstream news website or uh, an op-ed that might run in a newspaper? Or indeed, use that as the basis for an interview, or use that as the basis for a media release. Now, how are you finding? How do you find? How are you finding that strategy working for you? Given that, you know, notionally in traditional media, numbers are down. They're looking for quality. They're looking for spaces. Are you finding that the opinion pages are are looking for the sorts of content that you're offering, and the, and, and the uptake's pretty good. Very much so. I mean, That's we good. yeah, we find that particularly here, here in Australia, the Australian, the Financial Review, and the Fairfax Papers, the Age, and the Sydney Morning Herald, and the Canberra Times are very receptive to it. Uh, the Guardian seems to be interested in that sort of material, but does have a, a particular ideological bent that uh, doesn't always uh, fit in with our worldview, and we understand where they're coming from. Um, so there are spaces, and more and more now, you're getting uh, online-only platforms uh, like Crikey, for example, uh, which is quite receptive to it. Yeah. Okay. Now, just to, to backtrack a couple because that insight you gave us in terms of that first gate of your particular strategy and I like the way that you've described it there. But getting busy people, you know, reliably to, to turn up with uh, good quality content that resonates. How, how have you cracked that nut? Uh, well, I've got to confess, it, it hasn't been easy. There has been some <laughs> resistance from some people who, as you see, uh, yeah. you know, they tell me they're busy and they do have a lot on their plate and I absolutely understand where they're coming from and I yeah. wouldn't want to impose on them. Yeah. Uh, what we've found is useful is to uh, establish a routine. So we have an expectation that uh, each of our policy directors once a fortnight will contribute an item of, sort of 400 words. So we don't think that's an unreasonable burden on their shoulders. Um, we've established that, that routine. So they know yeah. what's coming up. They've got plenty of notes. Notice. Um, we also work with them to suggest some topics, suggest some angles that they might want to pursue. Uh, getting in the habit, I think, makes a big difference rather than having it as an ad hoc process. One of the other really important things in terms of content and, you know, the content strategy that you are outlining there is this notion of consistency in your publishing. So is it you are building the habits and the routines in your audiences? So is it they're looking forward uh, to the next piece of content that's coming from you know, the Chamber of Commerce and Industry. How good are you at, at, at you know, at taking on the, the skills of the publisher to be reliable, to be consistent, to hit those time slots so as that people can hopefully get into the habit of, of engaging with you? Lunchtime on a Tuesday is our time. We uh, will be in our members' inboxes pretty much like clockwork between 1 and 2 p.m. Uh, every Tuesday. Uh, and we've had to build in a, a sort of back-end process uh, so that we meet that deadline with uh, extraordinary reliability yeah. because we know that if we're going to build an audience, people need to know where we are and when we're going to be there and that they're going to get something decent to read every time they open it. So in terms of the implementation of this strategy, and I know you're only you know, not that long into it really in terms of the, of the process, um, what are the things that have really worked for you well and what are the things that have been a couple of, you know, air swings? Because I think one of the other things that people need to understand when they get into this content game is that not everything is going to work. The best possible evidence you have to make your decisions, uh, you know, sometimes it just doesn't happen. So sometimes you have to retire uh, initiatives that you thought that were going to work. So maybe best things, that, best things and perhaps things that haven't been so good for you so far. It's an interesting one. Um, I think where we've perhaps misfired is in trying to uh, push people into something that is not their natural fit. So I, I had a background in journalism where I was surrounded by other journalists who considered themselves as storytellers and, and thought and wrote in that way. 
a lot of the people I'm working with now are brilliant policy people but are not natural storytellers and it's not going to work and it doesn't work for me to try to impose a particular structure on them and to tell to tell them, well, I think you should write this way and to be the, the style police. Uh, I've I found through trial and error it's much better to... <laughs> Here comes people... Ari, get yeah, out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't... <laughs> Get away from him. You're telling it like it's a joke. <laughs> uh, so I've learned from experience, don't try to force a particular style. Don't pretend that people uh, are journalists and storytellers if they're not. Help them instead find their own voice, yeah. write in a style that they're comfortable with that captures their personality. Mm. Um, what about the future? You know, the, the, I, th- I find the, um, the times we're in just infinitely fascinating um, and I'm curious about everybody and what they're up to because it's just such an exciting time I think to be to be in the communication content business where do you think we're going to be heading over the next I don't know couple of years where how what what are you looking at in terms of the role that you've got and some of the changes that you'll be making in terms of you know capability and and process and structure Visuals. I think visuals yeah, yeah. are just making such a difference now. When you stroll scroll through your Twitter stream or your Facebook stream, overwhelmingly content has got a visual to go with it and occasionally it'll just be a stock photo, a bit of a lazy effort, but often it's bespoke visual content. It's an infographic that might help tell the story or it's a stylized quote and a, a particular photo that evokes an emotion. Uh, that stuff is is so important and it's an area where we're still in the very early stages of learning. We're still trying to gain that capability among our team to be able to do that. Yeah. Uh, and then the extension of that is video content. I mean, we're seeing fantastic things put together by, uh, you know, some lobby groups and interest groups with a, a short turnaround, the sort of thing that you used to just see during an election campaign in Australia where an event happens one day and the next day you'd see a TV ad. Now you're getting something that happens in the morning. In the afternoon you'll get a, a snappy video that um, that has a, a strong point to make and that'll be going viral online. Okay. And because the costs of distribution are almost nothing and the costs of production are coming down really rapidly... There's a lot of great potential out there to have uh, video, to have uh, infographics and things like that that yeah. can really take off. Which goes back to my point again that the you know the journalism skills, the content creation skills, those video skills, the graphic designs, the data visualizations, the videographers, increasingly going to come into this space. Well, listen, mate, we are hard up against time, and I'm very grateful that you have taken the journey across town here uh, in Canberra to to join us in the studio today. Uh, thank you very much for your wisdom. I'm sure the audience got quite a bit out of that. And there were a few things that I alluded to um, during the um interview that we didn't actually get to discuss. So what I will do in uh, a few weeks' time, maybe oh, actually maybe a couple of months' time, is get you back in because I think we can continue uh, the conversation um, because there is so much to talk about at a time of such great change and opportunity and, and enjoyable and fun and all the rest of it that we do have in the content game. Are you enjoying it? You, you, you like your job? Oh, absolutely. You sound uh, like you like your job. Oh, it is. Great subject matter, yeah. great people to be to, to work with and we feel like we're pretty close to the action so I'm having a ball there. Very good. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Ari Sharp from the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. 
thank you very much for, as I say, giving up a bit of your time this week to listen to the podcast today. I'm very grateful for that. Uh, if you would like to jump online, there is the research project that we're doing with the Australian National University that I am encouraging as many of you as possible to get online. Have a look at the start of it. We're going to have some update uh, towards that content. Um, it's a very interesting project for those of you who are interested in uh, content communication. So jump online, register, and we can, we'll start to send you out some more updates about how that project is going. It's going pretty well uh, and very enjoyable. Um, yeah. So anyway, thank you very much again. Uh, I'm very grateful always for your time and your attention. And I will be back at the same time next week. Bye for now. You've been listening to In Transition, the program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. For more, visit us at contentgroup.com.au.